Welcome to Future Forecast, the podcast with Oslo Business Forum, where we discuss leadership, technology, and sustainability with some of the most influential leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. I'm your host, Isabel Ringnes, and today we'll be talking about 5G, the controversy surrounding Huawei, and the questions every business leader should ask themselves. We are talking to Chief Technology Officer at Huawei, Paul Scanlon. But before we dive into this interview, I want to add full transparency about the fact that I've previously worked with Huawei as an influencer and currently use a Huawei phone myself. I do not have any financial interest in the company and I'm not restricted in terms of what I can talk about in this interview. Okay, so back to Paul. Paul is responsible for everything 5G, a spokesperson with a Western face, as he claims, and working to connect the remaining 30% of the world online. He has more than 30 years of experience in the IT and telecommunications industries across Asia Pacific, Africa, North America, and Europe. I'm meeting Paul fresh off the stage at Oslo Business Forum, where he talked about how 5G is transforming the future. Thank you for joining us, Paul. My pleasure, Isabel. Thank you for inviting me. Let's dive right in. You are currently heading the technology division of the world's largest telecommunications equipment manufacturer with a global market share of 30% last year and the world's second largest smartphone manufacturer coming in second to Samsung. You've been part of Huawei for more than 10 years and witnessed the incredible speed and development of this Chinese-based tech company from being a reseller of products to becoming a manufacturer of phone switches in 1980 to where you are today with 180,000 employees and 88,000 patents globally. Many may not be aware that you're also the world's fifth largest company in terms of R&D research and development across industries such as telecommunications, biotech, and even food tech. Starting off with a huge question, in your view, what has been the secret sauce, or perhaps better said, the fundamental ingredient that has led Huawei to where it is today? Second to, well, second to Samsung. Samsung is the, the leader, yes, yeah. yeah. But let's let just correct a few steps. So yes, Chief um, Technology Officer, I work for the uh, Carrier Business Group, which is the biggest business group that we have. It's the one that um, makes all the mobile and fixed equipment, you know, for the telecom operators like Telenor and Telia and um, and EC here. We, we don't do with EC, but certainly Telenor and Telia. Um, we have other divisions like the, the P30 Pro that you mentioned, which comes from our consumer business. So I work specifically for this one. But my role is very, very, very different, as I mentioned, sort of on stage. I get to do a lot of cool things, yes, like um, these types of interviews. Why? I'm part of the furniture. I've been 11 years in Huawei. I love the company. I don't think I would ever leave the company. And the reason for it is, yes, we're controversial, but you just have a think about why Norway and why China. Okay, so Norwegians, Norwegians love to travel. Norwegians are very professional, have very good governance, and also you like to concern yourselves and you take part in the problems of the world and you try and help and fix those things. And look at China. China is still developing and, and de you know, developing in different areas, whether it's 5G with Huawei or AI. Huawei's been investing heavily in, in AI and also IoT. But China has in, been investing heavily and maybe other countries have not. And perhaps that's one of the reasons for the geopolitical issue. But China has, has no choice. You know, a billion and a half people you need to use innovation and technology, and they've been learning from the rest of the world, just like Huawei has, the value of R&D, the value of trying to improve society using technology. So that's actually part of the question that I was getting to, um, because, sure, you've been at Huawei, is it 11 years? Yes, more than 11 years, yeah. Uh, and you've seen the speed and the incredible pace of this company, because you're absolutely right. It seems like it goes so much faster than everyone else. You put out yes. a supermodel in terms of uh, smartphones every year and yeah. a half? or Yeah, well, we, t we tend to launch a P, a P series, and we tend to launch a, um, a Mate series twice a year. So we'll launch a Mate in October and we'll launch the P series at the beginning of the year. So say two advanced phones, 
um, every year. Mm. Yeah, which is t twice as much as any other smartphone company. It's, it's different, yes, because the two products are targeted at a different market. So the two products have slightly different differentiation, slightly different components, slightly different features. We're trying to target a different market. So we present them at two different type times in the year, one in the US at CES and usually one in, uh, in Europe in, uh, in October. So um, from being a reseller of products, which you mentioned during uh, your stage time today, to becoming a manufacturer of phone switches in 1980s, to where you are today with 180,000 employees and 88,000 patents globally. Yes, that's right. Uh, and many are probably not aware that you're also the world's fifth largest companies in terms of R&D. correct. Across industries such as You've telecommunications, well. biotech, yeah, yeah. <laughs> even food tech. Um, and starting yes. off with a huge question. Uh, and you, you did mention a little bit of it uh, right before this, but in your view, what has been the secret sauce or perhaps better said the fundamental ingredient to what has led Huawei to be where it is today? Um, my personal observation is I don't think it's one specific thing. I think it's a combination of a couple, not too many. But the first one is by having a private company and getting people to invest, yes, and that's sort of the model that it's it started with, um, it creates a very different DNA in the company because everybody feels like it's they're really part of a company, yes? They're not listed shares or anything like that. And, and that also creates a bit of misunderstanding between, you know, who owns Huawei and why is it not public listed and things like that. And we would say, well, why aren't more companies private instead of, you know, taking capital and just ratcheting up, etc. But you know, let's not argue whether that's good or bad. But that's one key DNA of Huawei. The second DNA of Huawei is customer, customer, customer. And I know, you know, sales 101 will say, of course, customer, customer. But to give you an example, I can remember our founder, Mr. Ren, in a story where the bonus that he gave uh, the R&D engineers was the product they invented that nobody bought. So just think about it at the moment. That means, you know, you're, are you doing research and, and R&D for the sake of R&D? Or are you trying to deliver a business benefit to your customers? Because remember, if the customer's business improves, through using your products, they'll probably come back and buy from you. That's sort of sales 1.1, right? Um, very, very simple model. So we always have a customer-centric attitude. And that's also been a little bit of our perhaps demise because we've always gone to say, yes, yes, yes. Customer says, can you do this? Yes. Can you do that? Yes. Can you do this? Yes. After a while, you know, making products and software, sometimes they're, you know, you could have done things in a different way. If you said, no, we'll wait for the product in three months or six months or a year to have that feature as part of an architectural thing. It's a bit complicated, but um, the most important part of that story is that it's about customer. Related to that component is R&D. What do you invent and how do you invent it? And if you look at Huawei's R&D and innovation program, how does Huawei come up with these 80,000 patents, 88,000 patents? It's not by accident, all right? It's focus. So the business is very focused. The strategic direction of Huawei is very focused. We always focus on devices, as you mentioned, whether it's a P-series or a Mate-series, so devices for people, devices for things, IoT things, but a pipe strategy. You know, the pipe means how to carry the information from that phone, whether it's video or data or whatever it happens to be, medical information, it could be anything, to somebody else the provider or the person whom you want to communicate with or a hospital or whatever it is that you want to do with your phone, whether it's YouTube or this, it doesn't really matter. So we call that a pipe. In other words, transfer information. So our job is to help transport information. The more information, the more we transport, we make money, obviously, and that's, that's a key. But at the other end, it's the cloud strategy, which means how do you have an, an ecosystem of partners and information that can be moved across this cloud for the benefit of everybody, the people at the downstream end, the people at the topstream end. So focused R&D. That means we use, let's start with the first premise, customers. 
work with customers, identify what they want, collaborate with them. A lot We have about 21 joint innovation centers globally. That means we work here in Norway with companies like Telenos. We've had a, a joint innovation laboratory for years with them, with uh, Vodafone and others, BT and Orange and Telefonica. We, we work with everybody in this area because they all contribute different ideas. It's not about IP theft. It's about joint collaboration, just like working with research institutes. It's not about trying to buy or steal IPR. It's about trying to jointly innovate. Why do you want to go to you know Stern University or Stern School of Management at New York University? New York campus in Manhattan, or would you like to go to the Shanghai campus? Why is it in Shanghai? Ask yourself those questions. Why does Huawei come to you know, collaborate here in Norway or in other countries with universities? It's collaboration. It's a school of learning. You just heard the lady before me talking about how important education is. And if you have a, an exclusive, you know, or you try to exclude yourself, as some administrations are trying to do certain things, rather than in, become inclusive, surely you limit options, right? You limit innovation. Just like, as you mentioned, competition. Why 30% market share? Why not 50? Why not 80? Mr. Wren's principle, don't take too much market share. You need Western and alternative companies for competition. Competition creates, next component of why Huawei is so good, innovation. Innovation, it's terribly important to do these things. So Huawei, private company, uh, funded by the people. Uh, pay attention to customers, customer centricity. Third one, deep investment in R&D. And the last one is about partnerships. Does that sound like a company that you should be scared of? Is that a company that you'd rather work for? On that note, I can't interview an executive at Huawei without touching on the controversy related to the U.S. and Chinese trade war, with Trump recently banning Huawei from U.S. communication networks and effectively banning all Western firms from, from supplying you technology, the reason being, and I quote the White House, that you are a genuine national security threat to the U.S., to this day, though, as far as I'm aware, they have yet to issue any clear or fact-based evidence that anything wrong has been done. Even Microsoft's top lawyer and president, Brad Smith, said that the U.S. government should provide real evidence for cutting you off from U.S. technology currently lacking. As far as I'm concerned, Huawei's devices are produced in China, like virtually any other tech device is today, most of the components from the same factories on the same streets, and it must oblige under local and national law in the country they operate. In addition, software updates must be approved from local telecommunications providers, such as Telia or Telenor in Norway. You've also had several lawyers in the UK and Norway that have done their due diligence in terms of your operations without finding anything. So, getting to my question, what is the actual case here? Do we or do we not have reason to worry? And what are your thoughts on the U.S. strategy to stifle your presence in their country? It is very, it's a very complicated question, yeah, and certainly way beyond what I could even imagine could be the, the right answer or the wrong answer. And, you know, is the U.S. doing the right thing or the wrong thing? You know, the U.S. is, is doing what the U.S. thinks is right for their country, yes? And that's creating a lot of concern, not just between China and the US, but across the whole world, yes? Now, I'll answer a question in a different way. So you have a great idea. It's a Norwegian company, and it's today it's worth $15,000, and you're using American components. But suddenly you figure out how to do things that you know everybody in the world is needs, and suddenly your company becomes $100 billion. Will suddenly somebody withdraw supply of your products because you've become too big, or they think that you're um, not participating in the in sharing value across the stock market in different ways or can be manipulated or others. Could be a whole range of reasons, right? So let's put down a couple of very clear facts. Um, you're quite right. There's not been any evidence. We have uh, the government of the UK who inspects our software and they've issued a report. The OB has issued the report. That's public knowledge. It was issued uh, earlier this year. 
and it states that there's no back doors. They've not found any back doors. They've identified that maybe the product could could do with some architectural changes to make it more um, robust, you know, according to the Western way of doing software writing. Obviously, we're Chinese, so we do things a little bit differently. Um, and by the way, we know we're putting money in to try to improve that product because if that's of a, a concern to one government, then maybe it's of a concern to another government. But absolutely no backdoors, no proof of those sorts of things, no proof that we've ever even provided information to anybody or, or you know, tried to do anything or bring down networks. In fact, the software is good, the hardware is good. How good? The networks don't don't crash, right? Just ask yourself that question. Who else has had networks that crash? For example, I don't know the reasons they've crashed or which vendor they're using, but you know there there are a couple of things that are publicly factual based. So the U.S. putting this, whether it's part of a trade war, and are we the little poppy seed or the sesame seed caught in the middle, as Mr. Wren says? I don't really know that that's exactly the answer. But, you know, geopolitics works in very unusual ways. And um, Huawei, unfortunately, being a great R&D company and a great sales company, has never gotten itself into those things. So we haven't been perhaps marketing who we are, why we are, telling the Huawei story. How did we start? Who are we? Who are the people in the company? Um, this is not about disclosure. This is about, you know, just think of where our business comes from, Isabel. It comes from telecom companies. Who do we talk to? 95% of the time we talk to the technical people in, people in tele or Telenor. That's what we do. So why do we need to come on podcasts or come onto stage and start branding Huawei as, you know, we're this type of company or that type? We don't need to do that. We, we put a huge amount of money into innovation jointly into countries. So that's a huge investment. We pay taxes. We employ thousands of people. We employ about 35,000 people, foreigners. In, in just about every country, 100, 172 countries, even in the US. If you go to rural US, you'll find that all the telecom operators in rural, the T2, T3 guys, they love Huawei. Why? Because we make a difference to their business. We provide them the right type of services and solutions. So there's a little bit of scaremongering going on. There's a, little, a few things that are perhaps not exactly the truth. I'm trying to tell you exactly the truth. And you'll find that every, every executive and every person in Huawei will tell you exactly the same story because there's nothing to hide. All right. So in terms of, are we a national security risk? Well, the U.S. doesn't have an alternative company of, a, of an American brand that is making 5G networks, for example. So it's using two other companies or three other companies that it has different alliances with, perhaps. Yes. If we come down to, let's take Mr. Wren's offer, you know, get right down to the bottom, to the, to the pointy end. Mr. Wren has made an offer that if you really are concerned about us and that we've got either too much market share or you don't believe us or you really want an American or a European company to have at the, the leading edge or the bleeding edge 5G, we'll sell you the software. We've done it before, Isabel. We've done it with uh, Motorola in 2003. So we have a history of having um, licensed our 3G technology to competitors. So there's no difference. It's called, you know, a bit like OEM, yeah? So you can sell your product and let somebody else inspect it if they want and modify it and containerize it or do whatever administrations might like if they're linked to administrations. But you know, we're not, we're a Chinese company. We're very proud to be Chinese. We're not owned by Chinese government or anything like that. And I think the Chinese government loves Huawei because we've become a great success story to demonstrate what Chinese companies can do in exporting their capability around the world and doing things in a different way to the West. Just because it's different doesn't mean it's wrong. Just because it's different doesn't mean you need to fear it. Mm. And uh, one of the questions that I often get, uh, considering the fact that I do have a Huawei phone, is that <clears throat> people with, uh, I guess, maybe some prejudice would say, oh, but aren't you afraid that the Chinese are basically just seeing everything that you're sending back and forth and all your pictures and all my data? 
what's your? I'm sure that you maybe have heard something yes, I've like heard of that. Lysismo, yeah. What do you What do you tell yeah. them? So let's try to understand about um, what goes on in your phone. Your phone, everything in the phone, goes through certain applications. Yes, and let's take some popular applications like a WhatsApp or uh, you know, or Facebook or any of these sorts of things. Um, if you think about how a telecom operator works, the telecom operator is the person who's responsible for making the connection, providing the information to flow from one point to another point. They're the ones who operate it. How do they operate it? They operate it using very strict protocols. So they're responsible to make sure there's no malware inside a network. They're responsible for making sure that there's no, that the firewalls protect everything from attack and all these sorts of things. In terms of all the data, the content that you have over that, most of that, if not all of that, is always provided through the application provider. Huawei doesn't make apps. Facebook does. Google does. Apple does. Yes. Um, what, you know, WhatsApp does. All of those parties use that, that data. I use the phones. I use it for private things. I use it for, you know, for personal things, not private things, but for personal things. Of course, I use it for company things. And I have absolutely no fear that, you know, that anybody's controlling it or, or looking at my photographs or anything like that or my listening to my conversations. Other than perhaps, you know, national state organizations who have uh, alternative ways of doing things. And, and that really brings me down to why, when we talked about 5G and security, why didn't we even start by saying and advising our audience that you know, 5G is more secure than 4G? Every time you use your phone, 4G, people can tap into that. But in 5G, it's very, very secure. It's encrypted. So isn't that a good thing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And actually, the next question is about uh, 5G. They're short for fifth generation, for those who don't know. Um, so where 4G connections can provide download speeds of around 20 megabytes per second enough to download an HD movie in 30 minutes, 5G is expected to be fast enough to download the same film in 25 seconds. But... Aside from what most consider the benefit of 5G being improved speed and latency, which you also discussed on stage today, your case is that this is actually about money. Now, before <laughs> explaining that, why don't you tell us how 5G works and how you're currently working to make it a global reality? Right. Lovely question, Isabel. So the reason I say it's about money is because um, there's a lot of hype about, oh, it's very expensive. You know, we, it's going to cost us billions of dollars to invest and invest just remember, if you don't invest, you don't get a return. And what do telecom operators invest in? Licenses, spectrum, consumers, of course, but technology, yes? So I have a range of customers around the world. Huawei has a range of customers around the world. And some of them spend about 25% of their revenue on network, you know, enhancements, improvements, moving up to the next generation and things like that, more capacity, um, rolling out the network to rural areas. Then you have at the other end, you have some companies that spend, you know, 12 or 13% or because they're very worried and they're trying to maximize shareholder value. Of course, we all want to maximize shareholder value. That's terribly important. But so that's why I talk about, let's talk about money. Because if you understand that 5G is intrinsically more operationally efficient, spectrally more efficient, and it's also more efficient from a power consumption. People say, oh, but the 5G equipment consumes more power. Well, it consumes more power a little bit, maybe 20%. But it has 20 times more capacity. So if it has 20 times more capacity for only 20% more cost or resource, then it's actually costing you less per bit, per byte, per kilowatt or per spectrum bit, right? If you can understand those things. So now we come down to your first part of the question, which is, you know, how fast can it, can it be? I think we've been doing some demonstrations here which show, you know, it's easy to get about two gig to the handphone. So if you took a Spider-Man movie of maybe five to six gig, as I recall, 
probably a couple of seconds. But what's the business model today, Isabel? People aren't downloading. They tend to be online. Yeah? So they tend to be streaming. So it's not necessarily about the speed to stream, uh, to the speed to download. It's more about the streaming experience, which really means how you deploy the network, whether the, the network is built using big towers and everything like we did in the old days. But if you have a look at uh, the 5G products that Huawei's been developing, they're very compact, okay? They have the broadest range of capabilities. You don't have to believe me. You can go and talk, go and talk to your friends in every other telecom company in the world and they'll, they'll give you, you know, where is Huawei, where are our competitors and who provides the best features and things like that. Even though you have promoted our products, you're a user and you can distinguish which phone you like better than certainly the telecom companies can pick which provider they'd rather have. And in these areas, it means that you can build a network in a different way. Yep. So I still haven't talked about speed. So if you can build the network in a different way, then that starts to open up opportunities. Let's take an example. If you wanted to do connected cars, not necessarily autonomous cars, but connected cars, where the car of the future, what are you doing in the car? You're doing an awful lot of other things. Or a connected ambulance, you know, save lives. You'd like all this technology in an ambulance. Some countries, you still have dropped calls, right? You know, basic sort of problems. So for a lot of the opportunities in improving our life or becoming more digital in the economy, you need a telecom operator to think more broadly and think about different type of use cases and how they can use this new technology called 5G beyond being faster. And that also means they have to think differently. And that's a good thing because 5G really is about a platform for transformation. Changes the operating model. You know, the cost structure changes for the better. Savings can be passed on. Yes, it can be faster, give you a better experience. But now we have opportunities because of this technology to build the network differently so that we can enhance manufacturing or health or education, because these things, transportation, etc., these things contribute to the benefit of society. So how do you see, I mean, you, you did mention a few kind of like uh, overlaying ways that we'll see the world change with the adoption of 5G. Like, yes. As an individual, like how am I going to live my life differently from the 4G generation to the 5G era? All right. Let's take, let's, take uh, an example of in the health industry because health is important in every single country whether you're young whether you're middle-aged or whether you're old and it doesn't matter you're in a developed economy or a developing economy health is important it's the biggest industry it's about 1.62 trillion dollars why is it so expensive why does it take so long for things to happen yeah so let's think about some of the key things that 5g can do it can collect an awful lot of data very quickly yes and with cloud and ai we could provide that for medical research but let's take something very simple you said to your to your life very specifically. So maybe you're somewhere out in the mountains skiing and you have an accident or you have some other problem that occurs and you can't get to a medical clinic or an advanced medical clinic. But over with 5G, the concept of having virtual consultations, yes, directly with video or having a local triage facility, maybe in a mountain hut, something really basic, you know, with basic facilities, but maybe it has one or two pieces of technology that are very advanced, but you don't know how to use them. Your ski instructor doesn't know how to use them. Your buddies don't know how to use them. But over a distance, 5G would be able to control that and you'd be able to you know, probably get some good medical care very quickly. I'll take the example of the ambulance. In a connected ambulance, there's a lot of facilities you could put inside that ambulance and not save your life right now because you're healthy. But should there be a problem for your loved ones, what's going to happen? That, that's something very transformative. So virtual consultations, very simple little thing. It's called video, yes? Mm -hmm. 
doing things in a different way. Predictive maintenance in industry, things like that. Just take the transport example I gave you. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Yeah, it'd be lovely to cross your, cross your hands and watch the screen instead of driving the car. But what if you could always save you know, a large proportion of your day not fighting traffic? All right? And the benefit of that to you is, is obvious. But the secondary benefit to you is that the pollution is less. The pollution is less here. The pollution is less in China or in India or in America or Australia. Overall, those sorts of things can, can be transformed. They all affect your life. And when we talk about this, it just seems like, I, I know it's not far away, but still it, it's not really a reality yet. And I mean, a lot of people and especially like tech news, which I follow, I've been talking about this as like a hype and that phones aren't even built to be able yeah. to use it and so on. But then you were talking about on stage that, you know, this would take you an hour to set up a 5G network indoor, outdoor, like mm-hmm. right here at X meeting point. Yeah. Uh, like how how hard is it to to create a 5G network wherever you're living. Okay. Can anyone so, do it? No, they can't do it. Look, the, the examples I'm giving are um, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I'm trying to show some examples of how the product has become much smaller. Whether it's ours or our competitors is not really important. But you've seen all the Wi-Fi routers that are here, right? Everybody uses Wi-Fi. So the latest Huawei 5G is the same size as that. Same size as that. And if you have a look, it's got four screws. So you undo four screws, you pull that out and you put it in. It's got a little Ethernet connector on the side. You pop that out and you put it in. You now have 5G, potentially. You've got to do some work in the back to make sure that the, the back end is, is ready, what we call the core network. But you have to do that in any case. But the point I'm making is you have a different strategy for delivering, in this particular case, for the users, higher speed services that are based on 5G. If we wanted to provide massive amount of connections here, connect your watch, your earrings, your badge, your, your bracelets, you know, your cups, the teas, the waters, you know, all these things here, and you wanted them all connected for all different reasons, there'd be hundreds of thousands of them here. You probably have, uh, I don't know, a few thousand people here. So if everybody had of the order of 10 to 100 things connected, that's an awful lot of uh, very dense amount of information that's got to be supported. And 4G doesn't do that. So the ability to put in something like that for a conference here and very quickly have opportunities to do different things. Let, let me give you a very simple example. I was at another conference and they had uh, cameras to provide a, a VR experience. It was quite scary. Yeah? I'm not, not good with heights. I climb mountains and things, but I'm not good with heights. I can figure that one out. But it was really great because you strapped all this stuff on and all these sensors. And after it calibrated, sorry, after it calibrated itself, you're walking around through this um, futuristic place. It was very, very real. But it kept being jittery. And, and even when I put my hands together, even though it had been calibrated, you know, I might have been a centimetre away before I touched. Or, you know, so the new gloves that I was wearing and the spacesuit was close to accurate, but there were gaps. And when we finished, I was chatting to the engineer and he said, yeah, the problem we have is on Sunday it was perfect here. You know, and I had a look around. He's got 50 cameras, 50 cameras, all connected with Wi-Fi. And he said everything was perfect on Sunday. As soon as we came in here on Monday... They turned on all the Wi-Fi hotspots, everybody turned on all their phones, and we've got this jitter, we've got, you know, the calibration is not right, my hands are not touching properly, and the suit is a little bit fuzzy, things like that had happened. Now, if that was 5G, we could put, instead of Wi-Fi, we could put a 5G chip inside each of those cameras, all the users that have 5G, they could have still using Wi-Fi, it wouldn't matter. But the difference is that 5G will guarantee the experience. 5G will guarantee the service. And that's some of the things that are not, uh, have not been, you know, that's not about the speed. That's about providing a quality of experience. So I was thinking, you know, that would be wonderful. You imagine coming here and suddenly you could have, uh, as I saw one example, 
I could be sitting in your podcast here, I could sit in the next one, and I could be in Turin, having a tour of the Italian city there with right in front of me, which is what I did, virtually shaking hands with the curator who's giving me a private tour of the city of Turin's museum. And that's real. How much would you pay for that? Is that a dollar fifty? Well, it would be free. <laughs> well, uh, no, <laughs> that's no, what no, I'm no, thinking. No, if it's no, not, no, if it's not no, real, no, then no. it should be free, right? No, 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 no. It's, it was a virtual and an augmented reality example. And the reason I say, how much would you pay? Well, you'd have to hop on a plane from here and take a couple of days to go to Turin. That might cost you, I don't know, a thousand or two thousand euro. Here you can go to an experience experience store and you can have it immediately. That's what I'm saying. That's why I, I, I would hope it was I, I don't know. You're terrible. You're terrible. I'm not going to sell you anything. I'm not making any money out of you. I can see. Oh, no. I, I'm, I'm the worst person to sell to. I always have arguments. Uh, so I want to challenge you with everything that's happening in technology, obviously a lot. Where do you see the world in, in five years, 10 years, and 50 years? How dramatically different mm. with the exponential development everyone's talking about how do you see our world looking like in five ten and fifty years i'm an optimist yes yeah? so I, I love technology and i i believe that you know the world will try and do better things for the world rather than have all these these trade and other exclusive exclusion problems that we're that we're seeing today i'll give you some examples of why i'm optimistic in the health sector all right let's take, take health sector uh, i can still remember when the dna of, of breast cancer was published on the internet and I thought that was a very brave move. You know, if somebody could have kept that information, worked with a drug company, come up with something unique and, and cornered the market, if you know what I mean. But they chose to publish the information so that all researchers can, can now start to, to try and take an, an, uh, make an attempt to try and bring you know, drugs to the market. Um, you take the example of malaria or Ebola vaccines that have been trying to bring to the market very quickly and very inexpensively with the help of different foundations and the WHO and everybody. You've got people like the Gates Foundation trying to do a lot of great, great things and take different things to market through their involvement in not just financial contribution, but trying to help drive some of these innovative companies. Yes? Take an example of Huawei with our capability in 5G that, as I mentioned, is like a platform for transformation. More recently, our, our Atlas uh, sort of supercomputer with AI capability in our cloud. That means you, Isabel, if you want to go home, log in right now on your computer, you can get access to AI-based supercomputing power. That wasn't available before. So some of these things, some organizations weren't geared up or weren't interested. You've got countries like Norway who's very keen to try to drive governance and improve the world. You take particular interest in a lot of areas, uh, not just the climate, but, but in other areas from human rights to everything. And you're very active in participating in those things. So the reason I'm optimistic in, let's take the example of health, is because we are having research being done all around the world. You now have access to supercomputers with AI. Because everything and everybody is connected or becoming more connected, suddenly the opportunity for collaboration, you know, you just learned this, you told me to collaborate. I've taken your idea and further improved it. And maybe somebody else has taken it and found the answer to, you know, why are we here or the answer to cancer or the answer to, to infectious diseases, for example. I used to think that that was still some time away, but you've just hit the nail on the head, this exponential um, technological advance. It's a combination of technology becoming affordable, more pervasive, being more connected. And I believe more people becoming more open. If we can resolve the issues surrounding privacy, which is a governance thing, and people becoming more comfortable, are you happy to give away all your private data to absolutely find that you could, you know, maybe live forever? Example, just as an example. Some people would say, no, I don't want, you know, I'm, I want to keep my privacy. 
And other people say, no, 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 I, I want this, you know, I want to learn if I've got a disease or I want to be cured of that, for example. So there are trade-offs. So I believe optimistically that we will fix the privacy issues. I believe optimistically that we'll get around the, the trade issues over the next few years and the world will return more to a more collaborative and inclusive rather than the way it's, it seems to be at the moment. And there are, you know, genuinely com companies who are trying sincerely to try and provide technology to the masses affordably. Paul, I can see your assistant is giving me the eyes from outside <laughs> our podcast box here, so I have to round up. But but quickly, um, what would you say is like one or two fundamental questions that business leaders should be asking themselves today before they go into the next board meeting? We've been talking a long time about transformation, yes? And the challenge that everybody has in transformation is mindset. So you'll come to a conference here, you might see something that's wonderful, remarkable. And what will you do when you go back to your company? Meetings, meetings, emails, meetings, right? So how do we now try to do this within a company that's making money? Could be losing money. If it's losing money and you're thinking about transforming, you're, you're way too late, okay? How do we make transformation a part of the DNA of the company? So how do we have continuous programs that allow us to investigate what's out there and do things in a different way? So... If you're in a company at the moment, my suggestion would be, how do you look for other companies and take those ideas internally and make them part of your company's DNA, rather than we make a, a book, a book, a book, or a cup, a cup, a cup, and we're going to make it better and smaller and faster. Okay, you can do those things, but there's a lot more opportunities out there. Somebody's only going to come in and find a different cup, or it's not going to be the flavor of the month or environmentally friendly, and suddenly you're out of business. So you need to think very differently, you know. Even despite the entity list, Huawei still makes good money and good profit. In fact, it's increased. And to some extent, we have a lot of we don't have reliance on a lot of American products. We didn't do that yesterday, Isabel. Right? So we thought about business continuity management as far back as we didn't have a product. We better invent R and D. We didn't understand patents. We better get into research and start moving that. We better understand customers' requirements. Make sure we make the right products. All of this is not really um, complicated. But it means that companies really need to pay attention to a lot more than quarter-on-quarter -quarter earnings. And I can get richer and richer and richer. Is so more the, of a long-term strategy as opposed to immediate absolutely. profit? Absolutely. And th this is, I mean, how many Ferraris do people need or how many big mansions do people need? You, you don't really need them. You know, just think about them pragmatically, quite frankly, yes? So how much growth can we have? I remember a remarkable German guy, I, I just forgot, a professor said, the globe, the globe cannot handle more than about 2% growth per year. 2%. Which stock market company earns less than 30 or 40%? Right? We earn 7.5 for the record. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul, uh, this has just been so interesting, and I wish I could continue this talk forever, but I am afraid that uh, they'll arrest me from the outside no, here no, if I keep going. They're just getting hungry. <laughs> they're getting hungry. Well, there, there's, there's definitely going to be food for you. Thank you so I'm much joking. for joining. This was uh, really, really great and uh, very insightful. My pleasure, Isabel. Thank you. You're listening to Future Forecast, a podcast produced by Oslo Business Forum and myself. Tune in in two weeks for more interesting insights on technology, leadership, and sustainability with experts from around the world. If you like this podcast and wondering how you can support us, please take a second to give a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help. And if you have a friend or colleague you think might appreciate it, every share counts. Thanks again for listening. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness. Talk to you in two weeks.